presented by Meta. Hey, good morning, Playbookers. I'm Raghun Avalin. It's Tuesday. Today's show, Inside the Democratic Divisions when it comes to Ukraine Diplomacy. It's your Politico Playbook Daily Briefing. As Gideon Rockman, the chief foreign affairs columnist for the Financial Times, noted last week, for some of Ukraine's most ardent backers, even talking about diplomacy amounts to appeasement. 30 House Democrats, led by Congressional Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal, learned this lesson the hard way on Monday after they sent President Joe Biden what they believed was a nuanced and carefully worded letter endorsing direct diplomacy with Russia to end the war in Ukraine. They condemned Russia's outrageous and illegal invasion of Ukraine, reiterated their support for a free and independent Ukraine, and they were clear that American military and economic support should continue. Unlike House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy, they did not hint at voting against future aid packages. But their use of the D-word precipitated a torrent of criticism, mostly from fellow Democrats that had some of them backtracking within hours. In one notable example, former CBC co-chair Mark Pocan told a constituent the missive was written back back in July, adding, I have no idea why it went out now. Bad timing. The letter suggestion that Biden ought to engage in direct talks with Russia and pursue a new European security arrangement acceptable for all parties crossed into ideological territory that remains outside of the Washington foreign policy establishment's Overton window. And the reaction was swift. One member of the House Democratic leadership told Playbook, Vladimir Putin would have signed that letter if asked. That boneheaded letter just put Dems in the same league as Kevin McCarthy, who said in the same week that Ukraine funding could be in jeopardy. Senator Chris Murphy cited moral and strategic peril in sitting down with Putin too early. Writing on Twitter, the Connecticut Democrat said, sometimes a bully must be shown the limits of his power before diplomacy can work. Representative Ruben Gallego, a member of the CPC who did not sign the letter, told Playbook it isn't the U.S.'s role to force talks. It's up to the Ukrainians to determine their destiny, and the best way to do that is to support Ukraine in their fight for freedom, their fight for democracy. Jaipal later issued a second statement clarifying the position of the letter. But rather than clarify, it reversed the heart of the letter's key paragraphs. She said, Diplomacy is an important tool that can save lives, but it is just one tool. As we also made explicitly clear in our letter and will continue to make clear, we support President Biden and his administration's commitment to nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. Of course, calling for direct talks with Russia and laying out specific goals for a diplomatic solution is not what Ukraine wants. Not that there's anything wrong with that. The Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft's George Beebe, who endorsed the Jayapal letter, and Council on Foreign Relations President Richard Haas, who did not endorse the letter, both made clear in the Washington Post this morning that the nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine formulation is a bit of a fiction. In light of the nuclear implications, Beebe told the Post, simply saying it's up to Ukraine to decide is abdicating the responsibility America's leaders have to safeguard the security in all of this. Haas said at the end of the day, the United States cannot subcontract out its foreign policy to Ukraine or anybody else. We never do that. In his FT column, Rockman also noted that given the risks of nuclear escalation, the lack of diplomacy was both striking and worrying. But the Jaipal letter episode made it clear that Washington is not yet ready to have this conversation. On the other hand, the door has been opened. Biden will now be dealing with splits on both the right and left at home as he grapples with Europe heading into a winter that will severely test its unity. The D word will be back. Arizona is one of the midterm's most heated battlegrounds, with closely contested races for U.S. Senator, 
governor and secretary of state, among others, set to be decided in just two weeks. So why is the Arizona Republican Party on track to coaster election day with roughly $1 million left unspent in its campaign account? Politico colleague Alex Eisenstadt reports that former President Donald Trump is among those who have taken notice. He dialed up Arizona GOP Chair Kelly Ward on Monday to push her to unload the unspent funds on candidates he's endorsed in the state over the next two weeks. In a contentious, roughly five-minute phone call, Ward defended not dispersing the cash that remains in the party's campaign account. But Trump pushed back, calling her explanation a bullshit excuse, according to three people familiar with the discussion. Trump reached out to Ward while meeting with top political advisors, who informed him about the state of Arizona GOP coffers. During the call, Trump asked Ward why she hadn't yet invested the funds, and he expressed particular concern about whether Mark Fincham, a far-right candidate for Secretary of State, was getting enough funding. Ward's refusal to spend to the bottom of her organization's coffers had baffled top Republicans, and it remains unclear to those outside the state party leadership why exactly she is hoarding the funds. Ward who's otherwise been overwhelmingly loyal to Trump in recent years, declined to address those reasons in a statement to Alex. Here's what's up in Washington today, starting with the White House at 2.05 p.m. Eastern. President Joe Biden will get his new coronavirus vaccine booster shot and speak about the pandemic from the South Court Auditorium. Here's what's on the vice president's calendar. At 9.45, Vice President Kamala Harris will leave D.C. for Albuquerque, New Mexico. There, she'll speak at a finance event at a private residence with Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. Afterward, Harris will have a conversation on reproductive rights with Grisham and Eve Espy at the University of New Mexico. At 5.50, Harris will leave Albuquerque for Seattle, where she'll stay overnight. The Senate and the House are out today. All right, for more news on what's breaking in D.C. right now, now, subscribe to the Playbook newsletter. That's at politico.com slash playbook. Our music is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Rogu Munavalin. Have a good Tuesday. We'll see you first thing tomorrow morning. Some people say the metaverse will only be virtual. One day, surgeons will get countless hours of additional hands-on practice in the metaverse before operating on patients. The metaverse will help make education more interactive, allowing students to travel to space to learn about the rings of Saturn up close, or to ancient Rome to watch Mark Antony debate in 32 BC. In the future, farmers will use augmented reality to help run irrigation simulations to ensure the best yields, and urban planners will model traffic solutions to help decrease commute times, paving the way for less congested cities. The metaverse may be virtual, but the impact will be real. Learn more about what Meta is building for the metaverse at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.